Well, we're going to resume this morning our studies in Romans. It's amazing. I was looking back in, in my record. It's about nine months since we were uh, in Romans. We left at the end of, of chapter 8, uh, which in many ways is our kind of high point in the epistle. And uh, it seems that there is a, an aptness of timing as we come to Romans again, because as you'll see as we go through the chapter, many of the things which uh, arise in chapter 9 are picking up on the account of, of Moses and the Exodus. Some of the things which in fact are, are quite difficult to grapple with, such as the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, are picked up specifically by Paul in this chapter. And there's always a, a tremendous uh, thrill and encouragement from seeing the way that the New Testament addresses issues in the Old Testament. And so we, we're thankful that under God we come uh, to resume our studies in Romans at a time when we're also in the book of Exodus. Uh, let's just read together the first five verses of the chapter which we're going to be studying this morning. Uh, page 1135, I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, <clears throat> the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons, theirs the divine glory, theirs the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. This man uh, was in the news last week, Arsene Wenger, announced uh, his intention to retire from uh, management of Arsenal at the end of the season. Now, Arsene Wenger is an interesting character. Uh, outwardly, uh, he seems uh, kind of cerebral, intellectual, detached uh, from what's going on. But he is also a man of great passion. He had a passion for football when he was playing. And uh, he said this in an interview, interview with uh, the French magazine L'Equipe once. There were moments when I was 24, 25 years old, I would tell myself, if I couldn't play football any longer, I would kill myself. What is the point of life? otherwise. And he carried this passion into management. Uh, he is quoted in another context as saying, I have, he admitted, I have at times really struggled to play fair because of my absolute hatred for defeat. And this passion for, for football and for winning at football sparked one of the uh, most famous rivalries in football, uh, it's a wee bit uh, dark to see this, but uh, spat here between Wenger and Alec Ferguson, two uh, rivals, uh, the, managed, the Manchester United manager and the Arsenal manager locked uh, in a non-going feud. And it's interesting that when reading the newspaper accounts of Wenger's intimation that he was retiring, uh, one sports commentator commented that it was this period uh, 
when Wenger was most on fire, that people uh, who love the sport will look back on and see that this was his heyday. Uh, Matt Dickinson in the Times uh, commented it was this fiery feuding with Ferguson that most football fans would want to recall, uh, rather than the detached Canutian figure of the past decade, waves lapping around his feet. Football fans love passion for the sport. We're not interested in detached uh, participants. It has to be full-blooded, full-on commitment. Now, that is true of football fans. It's a hundred times more true of the gospel. There's no place for disinterested detachment from the matters of life and death which confront us in the gospel. Real people are going either to a real hell or a real heaven, and there is no place uh, in our hearts or our minds for a cool detachment from that prospect. In fact, when Christians speak with indifference about eternal truths, what they are doing is they are vaccinating people against the gospel. People begin to think that these things, uh, although they are held in the intellect by Christians, can't be real because if they were, they would affect their heart and they would be impassioned in communicating them. One passionate preacher of time has passed uh, was George Whitfield. Uh, Whitfield was uh, an outdoors preacher whose fiery preaching lit the great evangelical revival of the 18th century. And there's a, a well-known anecdote when uh, the, the deist David Hume, who really didn't believe in uh, Whitfield's gospel at all, uh, was met by a friend when he was scurrying across uh, a bridge in London, and the friend asked him, where are you going, David? And Hume uh, responded, I'm going to hear George Whitfield preach. And the friend was astounded because he knew uh, Hume's uh, irreligious position, and, and uh, he said, you don't believe what, Hume, what uh, Whitfield preaches? No, replied Hume, but he does. He was captivated by someone who had passion for the truth and who communicated that, that passion, that sincerity, that urgency in the manner of his preaching. Now, I'm not drawn to forms of worship which are exclusively emotional. I believe that uh, the, the Bible uh, is something which is received uh, in the mind. Uh, we don't leave our brains at the door when we come to worship. Uh, we believe in a gospel which is communicated. Uh, it's a truth communicated to our intellects. But the gospel is also about the emotions. I can be emotional myself in, in uh, receiving the gospel. I can be turned to tears. I can be made to sing because of the gospel. And the passage that we have before us is about the importance of a, a passion for the lost, a burden that Paul speaks of for his own people, which is to characterize every Christian in every era. 
That is the meat of our, our message this morning. The burden for the lost, for the unbeliever that ought to characterize every Christian. Uh, first of all, though, I want to, to set the, the piece in context because, as we said, it's been a while since we were in Romans, so we need to remind ourselves a little bit about where we are here. Uh, you recall that at the beginning of our studies we handed out an outline for Romans and essentially the, the message of Romans is a message about the righteousness of God. So this is an epistle which is all about the, the great uh, fact of righteousness. The key uh, verse is Romans 1, 16 and 17, which speaks about a righteousness uh, from God being given uh, to men. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, for in it a righteousness from God is revealed, which is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's the theme of Romans. And Paul labors in Romans 1 to 3 to speak about a righteousness which is lacking, universally lacking, in the human race. And then uh, in chapters 4 and 5, he speaks about God's solution to that, a righteousness which is supplied by God, a righteousness which comes from outside ourselves. It's lived by Christ. It's received by faith. Romans uh, 6 to 8 is righteousness applied. Righteousness received is justification. Righteousness applied is sanctification. Then we come to uh, this present section, right, uh, Romans 9 to 11, uh, righteousness vindicated. And we're looking at the, the position of, of the, the Jewish people and the seeming uh, injustice or unrighteousness uh, in God's dealings with them. And God, uh, God is being vindicated by Paul in these chapters, Romans 9 to 11, the righteousness of God vindicated. And then finally, Romans 12 to 16, uh, righteousness worked out. Uh, in the, the family and the workplace and the state. So it's a letter about righteousness. And the, the problem lying behind uh, the, the section that we're now beginning, Romans 9 to 11, uh, relates to the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people because this created a big intellectual problem because uh, for two reasons. Uh, Paul has said in the beginning of his letter that it is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So there's a priority in the gospel for the Jew. The Jew has a special place in God's economy. That's one part of the problem. Then in the end of Romans 8, Paul has spoken about the security that believers have. That God has his hand upon his own he will ensure that we persevere to the end, the perseverance of God with the saints. Now, the facts would seem to argue contrary-wise, because although 3,000 people, uh, Jewish people, uh, turned to Christ on the day of Pentecost, and there were many Jews in the early church, by and large, the Jewish people rejected the gospel. And not only that, but they persecuted uh, the missionaries of Christ, uh, including Paul himself. And so Romans 9 to 11 is a response to this dilemma of the, uh, the, the facts seeming to contradict God's uh, 
priority with the Jews in his promise to keep those he chooses. And here's how the, the argument flows. Uh, the first five verses are, are Paul's sharing his heart. These are the verses we're looking at this morning. But from then, verses 6 to 24 argue that God's purposes for the Jewish nation haven't failed because all whom God elects to salvation will be saved. And Paul makes the point that not all are Israelites who are in ethnic Israel. A true Israelite uh, is to be distinguished from someone who is simply brought up in the ethnic community Israel. Secondly, verses 25 to 29, he points out, God had previously revealed that not all Israel would be saved, and some Gentiles would be. Thirdly, uh, verse 30 in chapter 9 to verse 21 in chapter 10, he argues uh, God's purpose hasn't failed because the failure is the Jewish fault. Uh, it is them who have not believed. Uh, fourthly, uh, God's uh, purpose hasn't failed because it was always the case that there would be a remnant. This remnant uh, theology has worked its way throughout Old Testament uh, teaching. And then, uh, fifthly, God's purpose hasn't failed because the salvation of the Gentiles happening now is to provoke Jews, Jews to jealousy so that they will repent and they will turn to Christ. And finally, uh, there is the promise uh, of a turning of ethnic Jews, Israelites, and Jews in the diaspora to Christ before he returns. So that is the scope of these uh, three chapters, 9 to 11. They're a defense of the righteousness of God in respect of the anomaly that Jewish people have rejected their own Messiah. Now, the subject matter is very relevant for us also, even although there may be no Jews in our congregation, even though you may never have met a Jewish person in your life. Uh, the attitude that Paul has towards his own people is a model for the attitude that we ought to have for those who are our own people, those who are nearest to us. And I want to look at uh, the, the verses under three headings. First of all, Paul had a, a great burden. Secondly, Paul had a great burden for his fellow countrymen. And thirdly, Paul had a great burden for his fellow countrymen who had great advantages. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, Paul writes, for I could wish myself cursed and cut off from a Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Now, although Paul doesn't actually say it, he doesn't uh, uh, articulate it, the reason for his great anguish is that the, the Jewish people have rejected the Savior and therefore are heading towards uh, the judgment of God. They are not saved. As things stand, they will be rejected on the day of judgment. They will end in hell rather than being uh, safe with God's people eternally. And this causes him great heartache. You know the phrase, a burden for the lost? It's 
One of these, these phrases which uh, used to be common currency in Christian circles and then as we became so smart and sophisticated we think it's a little bit you know, archaic and people stop using these phrases like saved and they've got so much truth content and to have a burden for lost people, for unbelievers, for people who are rejecting Jesus is a very uh, opposite description of the proper attitude of a Christian to those who are not yet Christians. Uh, we ought to have a pressing concern for the, the eternal destiny of, of those around us. And Paul's burden follows logically from uh, a committed belief to the reality of heaven and hell. You know, you would have a burden for uh, non-believers if you don't believe in heaven and hell. Uh, liberal theologians, ever since the Enlightenment, have uh, either airbrushed out the obvious verses that speak of hell, or they've subsumed everything under the, the love of God, which they've said is all-embracing, unconditional. Now, when the church loses sight of the teaching of Jesus, our Lord, on judgment and hell, then she also loses her passion, her concern for uh, the unbeliever. Secondly, the burden Paul speaks of is a proper response to belief in hell. It's not enough, you see, to hold to an orthodox position on uh, heaven and hell. There is a proper, an appropriate, emotional response to that teaching. And that is to feel acute anguish. There's uh, a story told about the uh, Dundee preacher Robert Murray McShane, the 19th century preacher uh, who preached in St. Peter's. Uh, there was revival, uh, actually when he was away uh, on Jewish mission, revival broke out in St. Peter's Dundee. Uh, anecdote is told of him when he was uh, chatting with his friend Andrew Boner one Monday and he asked him, what did you preach on uh, yesterday? And Boner replied that he'd preached on hell, to which McChain immediately responded, I hope that you preached it with tears. I hope you preached it with tears. It's the only way to communicate such a dreadful truth. Uh, to be moved to tearful compassion for those uh, who could head to such a terrible uh, destiny. Thirdly, notice there's an intensity uh, to Paul's anguish which leads him to point to the sincerity with which he holds it. He speaks of great sorrow and unceasing anguish. That's not to say, of course, that the Apostle Paul was somebody who was continually uh, downcast, continually uh, emotionally sorrowful. Uh, there's nothing incompatible with, with feeling uh, the, the pressure of the fact that people without Christ are going to a lost eternity with the joy that comes from knowing Christ uh, personally as your Savior. Uh, there's no incompatibility there. Uh, Paul, after all, uh, told the Philippians to rejoice always. 
Uh, we are to know that joy in our hearts. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there is, if you like, a, a ballast uh, in our emotional experience, uh, a weight which comes from the knowledge that people uh, need Jesus. People need Jesus. They are lost without him. And Paul uh, declares the truth of what he is saying. Uh, his conscience, he says, testifies to it, but acknowledging that our conscience even can be blunt and misleading, uh, he says the Holy Spirit vouches for his conscience. It is a sincere anguish that he feels. And this burden that Paul feels is such that he very solemnly says that he could wish that he were cut off from God, or literally anathematized for the sake of Israel. It's a dreadful thought. If Israel could only be saved, if my countrymen and women would receive Christ, I would be willing, he says, to be lost myself. That's really solemn. I, I don't think I'd, uh, I could express uh, anything as solemn as that. It's a solemn, uh, a weighty statement for Paul to say. He's recalling uh, another text from, from Exodus uh, later on in the narrative when uh, Moses himself speaks these kind of words. Uh, remember Israel, uh, just at the very moment, ironically, when Moses is receiving the law from God in Mount Sinai, a law which says you will not make for yourself any graven image. What are they doing down below? They're uh, compelling Aaron to build them a graven image, a golden calf, and they're bowing down to it. And God is wrathful. And when Moses goes down, uh, he rebukes Aaron publicly. He causes the golden calf to be ground down, and uh, the, the people drink the, the idol that they've created. And the Levites uh, go through the camp, and uh, they slay some of the ringleaders in this mass rebellion. And Moses goes back up Mount Sinai again. And Moses is acutely aware of the enormity of the sin. This has been mass idolatry, a, a dreadful moment in the history of the people. And so he continues to intercede for Israel. And uh, he intercedes in Exodus 32, verse 32, with, with these words, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Paul's echoing those sentiments. Now we know that no one can redeem the life of another. Only Jesus uh, has lived the sinless life that can pay for the redemption of another soul. Uh, what Moses uh, asked for and what Paul rhetorically asks for uh, could not happen because they were both sinful men. But nevertheless, they're expressing something of the Spirit of Christ in the uh, in the hope that they uh, could uh, be in some way the means of their people finding salvation. The substitute would come. The only substitute would come. When the time had fully come, 
Paul tells the Galatians. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Paul carried a heavy burden, secondly, for his countrymen. For his countrymen. It's interesting uh, to notice that the, the burden uh, that he feels for his countrymen moves him to such language. Yes, there are these theological considerations that he goes on to. Uh, there are people who have all of these spiritual advantages. But the first thing that Paul says is, they're my people. They're fellow Israelites. I'm of the same race. They're the same blood as I am. I long for them. I long for them. Now, this isn't a blood and soil nationalism that makes one ethnic group out to be superior to another group. Uh, that has uh, no part in Christianity. But neither, on the other hand, does the foolish idea that uh, race, nationhood, family, blood ties are somehow uh, embarrassing. Uh, you may have met the kind of person that speaks of themselves as being a citizen of the world. You know? That's a rather poserish thing to say, uh, really, because it's quite ridiculous. I mean, in one sense or another, we are thrown in with people with whom we share uh, certain things, a certain language, a history, uh, national uh, symbols, and so on. And we naturally uh, have an empathy for them. Uh, it's interesting that uh, Paul's uh, sense of, of uh, nationhood is quite complex. He was actually brought up in Turkey. You know, he was uh, brought up in uh, Tarsus, which is Turkey, but he never thought of himself as a Turk. He was always an Israelite, and he was fiercely proud of the fact. And he identifies uh, in these verses with those who are his blood relatives, with those who share a common commitment to land and to worship. And these are powerful forces, powerful emotional forces. And uh, we uh, ought not to uh, disregard them. Uh, they are things which are to be offered to the Lord and ought to drive our compassion, uh, drive the urgency with which we share the gospel. Here is love for country which is redeemed by the gospel. It's a natural thing, in other words, for us to love the people who are closest to us. It's very easy in some ways to have a, a mental, uh, a, a kind of speculative uh, idealism for those that we've never met. Uh, but it ought to be the obvious place to start with those uh, with whom we share a common language, history, and outlook. And really, if you have the, even the slightest drop of love for country in you, then that under God should drive you to a compassion for your fellow countrymen and women who are outside of Christ, who don't, do not know the gospel. 
That was the impact that it had on Paul in regard to those of his own race, of his fellow Israelites. Paul had a heavy burden. He had a heavy burden for uh, those who were his own countrymen and women. He had a heavy burden for his own countrymen and women, thirdly, who had great advantages. This really ramps up the tragedy of Israel. Paul feels for them because they're his own people. They are his, his own kith and kin, we would say. They're his countrymen. But they're also people who have had enormous spiritual advantages. Uh, they had every reason to believe in Jesus rather than to reject Jesus as Messiah. And Paul lists eight advantages that his people had. First of all, there is adoption to sonship. Adoption is this great blessing. Uh, Professor John Murray points out that uh, adoption, as it's mentioned here, is different from the adoption that, that we often speak of as being the, the greatest of our privileges in Christ, the being brought into the family of God through the new birth uh, and through the, the new status which God gives us as his. This is really referring to the, the, uh, the choice of God of the nation of Israel as the people through whom he will uh, give his revelation and work out his purposes. This was an immense privilege, uh, and it's rightly at the head of the eight privileges. They were a chosen people. They were adopted for God's purposes. And this meant that Israel also received the divine glory, the divine glory. Uh, this means that the visible symbol of God's presence that we have at various points in Israel's story. Uh, sometimes it's called the Shekinah glory. Uh, it's the, the glory that appeared in the cloud when Israel was leaving Egypt and the cloud separated them from the pursuing Egyptians. The cloud that uh, later led them uh, through the wilderness that was a, a pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day, God's glory presence. It was the, the glory that filled the tabernacle and later the temple. It was the glory Ezekiel the prophet saw uh, depart from the temple in stages. The presence of God. The covenants were God's special bonds with his people, first made with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, confirmed with Israel at Mount Sinai, re-established with David. God committing himself to be their God. God giving them uh, obligations and promises. The receiving of the law. An amazing advantage that was possessed by Israel. Of all the peoples on the earth, it was the Israelites to whom God chose to reveal his character and his just requirements. They alone received the law. The temple worship entailed all the regulations surrounding the tabernacle and temple, sacrifices, uh, clean and unclean and so on. And through the temple worship, God was teaching people the seriousness of sin, and that sin would require sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, uh, to be right with God. The promises, the Bible is full of promises, refers especially to the promises of redemption to be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. The patriarchs, talking there about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, great men, 
illustrious men, men of huge stature that were the founding fathers of Israel, the human ancestry of Jesus. What a privilege the Israelites had that God, when he took flesh, should come as a Jew. We must never forget that fact as Gentiles, that Jesus uh, was a Jew. He was defined in some eyes by his Jewishness. And all of these advantages heightened Paul's agony over the unbelief of his people. Theirs was unbelief in the face of these huge advantages. They of all people should have repented, turned to Jesus, accepted him as their Messiah. And instead, they were doggedly refusing to receive him as their Messiah, were persecuting the Messiah's missionaries. And to this day, Jewish people largely resistant to the gospel. Well, the special place that Jews had and have in God's economy should still make them have a special place in the heart of God's people. We, as the new Israel of God, should be prayerful for Jewish people. Jewish mission has always been central in the missionary thinking of the Free Church of Scotland. Uh, it should always be. They are a people uh, for whom God still have purposes. We ought to pray for their turning to Christ. But you know, there's another sense uh, in which Paul's anguish and burden is relevant for us, and that is in terms of our own country. Scotland. Scotland as a nation has had many spiritual advantages. Many spiritual advantages. Think of the Reformation. Think of what was done under God through Knox and Melville in our land. Think of what our nation was before the gospel came in power. We were a backwater on the edge of Europe. And the gospel changed that. The gospel brought a new work ethic, a new appreciation for the written word, a new thirst for knowledge. It was the engine of renewal in our land. And God in his goodness sent revival to our country again and again and again. Revival in Kirkushots, Langside, Hillside, along the northeast coast as revival spread from one fishing town to another. Revival in Lewis, 1948-49. We sent missionaries around the world. Scotland was the place in which Presbyterianism was forged and sent around the world. Our national church, the Church of Scotland, was respected as a church which believed the Bible, which really believed its confession of faith. We had great advantages as a country. And today, it's estimated less than 2% of all Scots are evangelicals. The national church 
lies prone. We're like Israel as a people who have turned their backs on great advantages. And that should have an emotional response in our hearts. It should move us to tears. It should create a burden for our countrymen and women around us. Hudson Taylor, a pioneer missionary to China, returned on a visit uh, to the UK and he spoke at a vast missionary meeting in Edinburgh. Uh, he was describing the, the, the condition in China uh, in the mid-19th century, and he illustrated it by telling the congregation about uh, a time when he was waiting for a ferry to take him across a river. And while they were standing on the riverbank waiting for the boat, a man fell into uh, the, the torrent, and no one did a thing. No one cared. People, he said, actually continued with the conversations in which they were engaged. They were indifferent to his cries. No one moved to help that man. He drowned before their eyes. And the Scottish audience was, was silenced by such a, a brutal lack of compassion. And then Hudson Taylor uh, cried out to them, you are upset with these people in China refusing to rescue a man from spiritual death. What are you doing about the thousands of people around you who are spiritually dying? Thousands of people in Scotland, thousands upon thousands of people in China. It's a real question, isn't it? I wonder to what extent we can even approximate to Paul's uh, sense of anguish for those who are his own people, those of his own country. May God have mercy on us. May God melt our hearts and may he move us with this sense of burden for the lost to share the gospel with the people who are on our doorsteps, those who are around us, those with whom we have so much in common and who have turned their backs on such great advantages. And may he have mercy on our land to his glory. Amen.